My name is Heinrich Hansen, and this is the Wine World. We've been so lucky today to be visited by Mark Andrew. Mark is a master of wine, and uh, he's also running both the Noble Rock Wine Bar and Magazine. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Um, I must say, it's not just me that runs Noble Rock. It's my business partner, Dan, as well, who's a big part of it. But uh, yeah, we do, uh, we do both things together, yeah. It's all about you today, uh, Mark. <laughs> You're in uh, Bergen today to talk about the uh, Greek wine in association with the uh, Norwegian Sommelier Association. Uh, what sort of tricked your interest in uh, Greek wine? Well, initially I, I was interested in Greece because it was an opportunity for me to get away from wine. Um, and I say that because as a wine buyer, which is the first sort of 10 years of my wine career was spent doing um i was in france a lot and traveling around french wine regions for for a living and sort of spending at least half the year traveling in france and as much as i loved that and continued to love it um it, it made holidaying in france a bit a bit less attractive because i was there so much for work and so my wife and i um when we got together about 15 years ago we pretty early on we decided to go to greece on holiday to see whether or not a few beers and cocktails on the beach might give me a bit of respite from the wine trade. And we had a wonderful time and and loved the people and the place. Uh, but before too long, um, as you would imagine, I suppose anybody who's as obsessed as about wine as we are, it's going to happen eventually. I, I just sort of fell back into the wine part of the conversation uh, and became increasingly interested with what was going on in Greek wine. Um Ultimately, that that meant that I became as obsessed about Greek wine as I am about Burgundy or or Champagne or, or anything else. So the last few years, in particular, um, I did my Master of Wine dissertation on uh, a Certico from Santorini, and of the last few years, I've I've made a lot of friends in Greek wine and uh, spent a lot more time actually being involved in the in the wine trade side of things. You know, judging at competitions and visiting the wine fairs and visiting the wineries. Um, and so, yes, now I'm well and truly a, a, a big fan of the Greek wine scene. You give us sort of a very quick review of uh, the important points of the modern Greek wine scene today. I think really what played a massive role was a big leap forward for Greek wine when it came out of a lot of turmoil that the 20th century brought. And it came out of the uh, the military dictatorship in the mid-70s. And that really was year zero for, for Greek wine. You know, at that point, the wine industry was very rustic, very backward. The wines were almost universally low quality. There were some exceptions to that rule, but most of the wine was very low quality. And the, there was a generation of people that went to train in France, uh, both to study enology, but also to, to work at wineries uh, around France and Italy and, and other more advanced wine regions and brought that knowledge back and that was a catalyst for a, a complete revolution in the in the Greek wine scene during the in particular during the 80s and the 90s now a lot of that was very technology based and very wine science based and that played a really important role and you know continues to do so of course and the the understanding of wine was really taken forward it led to wine programs and enology programs being developed at the at Thessaloniki and, and Athens University and has really sort of helped to create a much broader understanding of what it is to make uh, clean, consistent, high quality, internationally acceptable wines. But as great as all of that obviously was and as important as all of that was, what we've finally got to in the last few years, um, and I say finally because it really has taken that long for, for this to really happen, we're finally seeing a lot of winemakers that 
I would describe as authentic or artisanal. Some people might say in some circumstances would be natural, but there are there, there are enough now. There is enough of a critical mass of very exciting artisanal wineries that are not obsessed with wine science, but have harnessed a lot of the the understanding that has come out of that generation, and then have really become committed to applying that very much to terroir. So the farming is much better and the the commitment to making wines that are representative of where they come from rather than wines that are maybe more internationally styled. That has really kicked in over the last few years and that's made Greece an incredibly exciting place to, to be a to be as a wine buyer, to be as a wine drinker, to be as a wine journalist. There are a lot of wonderful stories, over 300 indigenous varieties, uh, scores and scores of of incredible terroirs and PDOs that are relatively unknown, even for the Greeks at this time. So it's a very exciting moment to be involved in Greek wine. um, And I'm sure over the the next generation, we're going to see an even greater number of exciting wineries pop up and and world-class wines to be, uh, be, be released from them. For yourself, how did you get into the wine trade? Oh, God. Um, so I, I actually, I have my father and my stepmother to thank for this because I came back from traveling. Uh, I've been backpacking and sort of living abroad and just doing the, the post-university thing, seeing the world. And at that point in my sort of early to mid-20s, I'd, I'd never even drunk a glass of wine. And I came back and was staying with my my uh, dad and my stepmom for for a while while I was getting ready to uh, to move down to London. And it was during that period that they introduced me to to wine. Under duress, I have to admit, I, I wasn't uh, particularly enthusiastic about the idea of drinking wine, but they they pushed me to do so. And I remember one particular night over a steak and a couple of bottles of Rioja, really having my curiosity piqued by the fact that these two bottles of Rioja, which ostensibly were the same, they were both. Uh, Crianthas from the same vintage, but they were very different drinking experiences. One was much better than the other. And I think anybody that has a a bit of latent geek in them, uh, as I always have and always sort of treated football in particular as if it was an academic subject. Um, And so was really intrigued as to why this difference could exist in something which ostensibly I thought was the, the same thing. So that really sparked my um, my curiosity. Moved down to London and very quickly started working in the hospitality trade down there. And wine became something which uh, which was a route for me to to get more interested in. And my now wife was big encouragement to for me to get involved in that. She bought me a lot of books and uh, and really pushed me to to sort of explore it. And I did. And before long, I made the decision to move into the wine industry full time and didn't really look back after that. Yes. Started up working for almost a decade as the um, head buyer for Robertson Wine. Um, how did that affect you as a wine person? Well, it was it was an amazing experience. Uh, Cliff Robertson is a bit of a a legend of the British wine trade, and um, I was initially working for Cliff in the retail store, which was a great experience in and of itself. I was uh, given the opportunity to host fine wine tastings every week and. Through that, got to taste and drink, you know, all of the best wines in the world, the the great Bordeaux, the great Burgundies, and so on. And he was is a very open minded businessman, and I say businessman deliberately because he he's a very entrepreneurial character, and he really is about building a great business more so than he is perhaps a wine connoisseur. Although, as much as he says that himself, he he knows a lot more about wine than maybe he lets on. What that allowed me to do was to go to him at some point and say. We need, as a business, we will benefit from starting our own buying department and sourcing much more of the wines we sell direct from the the winemakers and so on. And after I put 
a little business plan together and presented it to him. He saw the the merit in it. And rather than then going out and hiring an experienced wine buyer, he said, right, get on with it, which was amazing. And, you know, I was still very much in the the, the early period of my wine career where I was learning uh, an enormous amount every single day. I'd like to think that's still happening, but certainly at that time I was pretty voracious in uh, in consuming knowledge and so it, it came at a perfect time because I was I wanted to discover I wanted to find new things interesting things but at the same time I wanted to learn about the classics and, and build my my own context of, of what the wine world was about so I went out into that wine world and just got stuck in and the results were were great from a business perspective it, we achieved a lot of the objectives that we'd set for ourselves and also on a personal level it enabled me to to see every single aspect of the wine trade and really form my own opinion as to to what great wine is what the wine conversation should be about and where the 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 focus and the emphasis should be placed and i came out the other side of that as somebody who really believes in in terroir and and the authenticity of grape varieties and the place that they're grown and appreciating winemakers who feel the same and don't look to exert their own ego over the top of uh, of this incredible combination of grape and land that so many of them are blessed with. And was it true, Robertson, that you got on the track of becoming a master of wine as well? Yes, I'd say so. And the reason for that was that I was you know, relatively academic. And so as soon as I started in wine, I followed the WSET path, did all of those qualifications. And then Cliff encouraged me to continue. And so the master of wine is, a, is an expensive qualification to pursue. Well, certainly is if you're earning the the uh, the wine industry wages that are, are most common, and so I I needed help to do it, and Cliff offered me that help and uh, and really encouraged me to to get on with it. So it was through that job and through that working environment that um, that I ultimately pressed ahead with the Master of Wine Studies. It seems to me that having gone through all that and um, having that kind of safe job as a uh, had buyer for a wine company it seems like quite a leap to go off and start a wine magazine as you did uh, with Noble Rot instead. Yes uh, well so what happened with Noble Rot was that Dan my business partner had been coming he was at the time he was a music industry exec well he was actually the managing director of Island Records and uh, a very successful guy in the music trade but he was sort of falling out of love with the industry um, it had gone very much down the kind of x-factor talent show kind of route and he was at the same time really getting into wine and saw a lot of the things in the wine trade that he had loved about the music industry when he got involved in that in the first place and he was coming to my tastings we became very close friends we we'd drink together you know socially and so on and and talk about wine in the same way that we talked about football or that we talked about music or film or whatever it might be and we felt the we both together felt that there was an opportunity in wine media to take that more relaxed approach to talking about a subject that we care deeply about um, and sort of translate that into something that that was new and, and didn't exist. And that's where the magazine was born out of. We did that in 2000. We started in 2013, the, at the start of 2013. And I didn't leave my job for a couple of years after that. You say safe. I mean, I don't think, I don't think anybody working for somebody with the sort of the business standards and the performance standards of Cliff Robeson has a safe job. I mean, you really have to earn your crust. But yes, relatively speaking, certainly compared to being uh, out there on your own as an entrepreneur, uh, I had a steady income. So we started the magazine. We had a great response to it. And it really seemed to to sort of hit the zeitgeist or sort of touch a nerve with a lot of people. They they responded to it very, very well. And we knew we had something that, w- that was worth pursuing. And so 
about a year before I finished at Robeson, I, I had a conversation with Cliff where I said, I will be leaving to, to pursue Noble Rock with Dan. And he was very good, said, okay, well, as long as you continue working hard, then, you know, there's no reason for us to end this now. So I stayed with Robeson for a, a bit longer. Um, we had a big success with bringing Californian wine into the UK market, the new California, which happened towards the end of my time there, which was great. And, and we really uh, were very happy and pleased with how that had gone. And so I left on a high and Dan and I opened the restaurant, Noble Rock. Uh, restaurant and wine bar in 2015 and that was really when I was out from having a steady income and into the uh, to the entrepreneurial world of you know running our own business which has been absolutely fabulous and I don't regret any of it for a second. Do you do any service in, in the wine bar still or? No I did, I did when we first started um, I would, for the first few months I thought it was important to sort of be on the floor to some extent but To be honest, the people that that work for us, and many of them have worked for us since we opened, are far better at it than Dan or I could ever ever be. So, no, we we're very involved. We're we, you know we're a, we're around every single day, unless unless we're traveling, we will be at the restaurant, and we're very involved with staff, very hands on. We we do lots of training, and we uh, we make sure that we're very much a part of the lives of the people who are working every service. But yeah, in terms of actually taking orders and doing all of the uh, the, the difficult stuff. No, we, uh, we don't do any of that anymore. You've made a, a magazine now that I think is is probably at, is regarded by many people to be at the spearhead of both making new trends and finding new areas perhaps or, or being trendsetters in, in the wine world. Was that sort of the idea when you started? No, I don't think there really was any particular idea. It was just we wanted a forum to have the conversations about wine in the way that we were having them, you know, between ourselves and between friends. And we wanted to create something that was cool, something that was exciting, something that was different from uh, from what had gone before it. We felt that there was a, a gap there in the media to to do something that was a bit more youthful. It was a bit more fun-loving. It was always really important for us to to sort of focus on the on the joyous side of of wine, which I think so few magazines tend to communicate. And it was important for us to build wine into the context of the world that we live in. You know, that context is popular culture, it's food, it's restaurants, it's art, it's music, it's so many other things. So we really just wanted to represent the way that we felt about wine, the way that we communicated about wine and put that manifest that into a magazine and if that means that that we talk about becomes talked about elsewhere then you know that's great but there's we're also very much people with our ears open to what else is going on elsewhere so we're not deliberately trying to set trends i suppose is what i'm saying we're just trying to have an honest and fun conversation about this amazing world you ever taste any wines that you really like that you keep to yourself that you don't want to write about <laughs> that's a funny question because we've often had the conversation where we've said oh maybe we shouldn't really talk about it. the answer is no uh just in the same way that if we go to a great restaurant that has a great wine list it, there's part of you that thinks oh but if i tell everyone about this then all the wines are going to get drunk but you you know i think if you're if you're honest about what you're doing and you're and you love it as much as we do then you have to share it with the people that you speak to or the people that you're writing for So the answer is no, but it's it's an interesting question because uh, we have talked about the fact that we're not deli- that we don't do that. We have talked about that fact before. I've uh, I've often wondered in uh, wondered in the life of um, uh, master of wine, what does uh, a normal workday look like uh, in the life of 
Mark Andrew MW. Well, my workday doesn't look like most other Masters of Wine's workday, I would have thought. I mean, there are some that have involvement in the on-trade, uh, which is to say the restaurant scene, but not very many of them at all. My working day revolves around managing our staff, managing our, the finances of our business, buying wine from lots of different sources all around Europe. And it seems like lots of days are just back-to-back meetings. And, you know, Dan and I will have a lot of strategic discussions about the direction of the business or what's happening in the next issue of the magazine or what we need to do with the wine list. So the days don't have any set uh, routine. There are so many things going on in our world that it's really just about identifying what is the biggest priority at any given moment and then attacking that priority and getting it done as best we can. Um, So it's quite an eclectic work environment, uh, but ultimately... We have great people working for us, and Dan and I have a great relationship between the two of us, so we uh, we figure out ways to get everything done. One last question. What do you think is the... How do you see the future in the European wine trade or and style of wines in the next 10 years or so? I think the big thing over the next 10 years is going to be um, the... And I hope this is the case, an increasing stigma attached to people who are not farming responsibly. Now, the style of wines that comes out the other side of that depends on the ethos of the producer, obviously. But I think that the natural wine conversation has been incredibly exciting and interesting and divisive, of course, uh, at times over the last decade or so. And I think we're finally getting to the point where a lot of that is settling down now and we can take the good from that conversation, which, like I say, I think is, for me, primarily things like farming. Um, And we can incorporate that more into the mainstream. I think that's already been happening. I think it's very exciting to see that, and I think that will continue. I, I honestly believe that in the next decade, we will start to see appellations that that stipulate organic farming as part of the uh, the AOC rules. I hope that's the case anyway, and I think it's uh, I think it's required. Certainly, the worst excesses of industrial farming have got to be curtailed. So I, I think that the, from an industry perspective, from the production end, farming will become increasingly stigmatized if you're not doing it properly, and I hope that to be the case. Stylistically. We're in a period at the moment where we've come away from wines that are blockbusters, so to speak, big, heavy, alcoholic styles. And we're very much living through an era of lean whites and light reds, which has been going on probably for the last five or so years and and has been great. And I think was a much needed correction from the overblown styles of wine we got into. But I do think we're going to come back a little bit from that. I do think that people are going to start to embrace generosity again. Um, maybe more so than they have done for the last few years. Um, And what will be interesting to see is, particularly if some of the classic regions like Bordeaux can embrace some of the elements of what we've been discussing as part of the natural wine conversation over the last decade or two, if they can start to come away from this overly technical, overly intervention-led kind of model uh, that sort of dare I say it, the Parkerized wines maybe of um, of the, the 90s and the noughties. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with, with Bordeaux. Champagne has managed to resurrect itself uh, through the grower movement. Uh, Burgundy never really had to worry too much because it had always been very much dominated by small estates, although pricing obviously with Burgundy is a problem. But it's going to be interesting to see whether Bordeaux can reclaim some of its lost ground uh, that the last the last decade has, uh, has really made it difficult for Bordeaux to be relevant to a lot of young contemporary wine enthusiasts. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes, I think. Thank you very much for coming, Mark Andrew, Master of Wine and co-founder of Novorot. 
Thank you.